be sick of the sight of me recently. <laughs> um, well, a little bit cut off the left there, but it's not too bad given what the circumstances are. We'll fill in the gaps. Um, we're looking at Acts 20 this morning, and uh, quite a chunk, verses 13 to 38. Um, I have to say this is um, it's a challenge, this, this passage this morning, there's a lot happening here. Um, just looking at it, really, it's written almost like a sermon in itself from Paul uh, to the Ephesian elders, and, and I can only humbly say, really, that I've got nothing to add in terms of, um, other than to try and really draw out what, what I believe it's spoken to, uh, in, in, to me, and enunciate that in a way that will hopefully bring out some challenges to all of us as clearly as possible. So I'm going to pray first as we come to the passage, and then we'll address it sort of chunk by chunk, rather than try to digest everything at once. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to um, humbly come before um, your word, Lord, to consider the words of Paul, Lord, these exhortations, these urges, these appeals to the Ephesian elders to keep watch, uh, to imitate his heart and his example. And I pray, Lord, that um, as we study these things, that very simply those messages, those clear challenges that came to those Ephesian elders might also be apparent to us as well, that you'd uh, minister at our hearts, Lord, wherever we're at this morning, if we need to be encouraged or challenged or changed ultimately pray that we just uh, put your word in authority over our lives and uh, and be prepared to listen in jesus name amen so we'll um, we'll start reading um from acts 20 we're looking at verses 13 to 17 first um and i've kind of headed this on the way to jerusalem just to put it into context and we'll see and um, we'll go from there this is acts 20 13 to 17 first says this We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And we'll stop there for now. I've titled this morning's sermon loosely, um, Food for the Race. And this bit of context in those, just those first few verses really just sets us up um, for what Paul says to the Ephesian elders shortly. So just to contextualize that, Paul is at this point headed back to Jerusalem, we're told. He's on the back end, of, as we've been studying in the last few weeks, um, the third missionary journey. And we've been in Ephesus Lords on this run. Um, Paul spent two years there ministering and reaching uh, the wider region from there as like a base of operations. And Ephesus, as we've seen, has been an important strategic place for the gospel. And the letters Paul came to write to them, Ephesians, emphasized his love for them and his desire for them to know the Lord better as they tried to stand strong in this huge busy and quite difficult city really to to work within but we're told in the passage this morning that Paul's in a little bit of a rush he wants to be back in Jerusalem before Pentecost and important to note that Paul must have felt called this particular year to make it back and and God's as we've seen really been directing his steps throughout he has been gone from Jerusalem for a few years now and hasn't ever mentioned before a desire to be back for Pentecost celebrations This was the time of year when the Jews celebrated the giving of the Torah and the law of Moses. Um, It's known as the Feast of Weeks in the Old Testament, and it's about 50 days after Passover. 
So maybe Paul knows that this is a great time to minister to the Jews because of what they're already celebrating. Or perhaps he's also keen to celebrate the anniversary of the birth of the early church when the Spirit came at Pentecost. But we're told in the passage he's keen to be there if possible, knowing that the Lord might tie him up in other things along the way. But even though he's in a rush, we see that Paul was filled with so much love for the churches that he's desperate to still minister to their needs. Knowing that he won't have the time to stop off in Ephesus, he gets to Miletus in verse 17. That's the yellow dot on the map. And, um, and he sends for the elders of Ephesus to meet him there, which is from the blue dot on the map. So not too far away. And everything we're about to read really is Paul's passionate words to these elders. It's an exhortation for the leaders, but I'm sure it has relevance for all of us in how we live our lives. And he uses the language of a race in verse 24, which I'll use to sort of frame um, the passage this morning. Paul knows what a good race is like, doesn't he? And his example is one to be imitated. And so it's with weeping and with desperation that he gives them spiritual food to keep them running their race well. And I guess the overall theme there is if that these elders run their race well, they'll feed their flock and then the church will be enabled to run well too. So we'll look at verses 18 to 24 now and see what it is exactly that he says to them. Verses 18 to 24. When they arrived... He said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So we'll stop there for now and we'll look at this chunk together. I've sort of titled that Paul's Heart and Example. So this is the first chunk of Paul's message to the Ephesian elders who gathered to see him. And Paul often calls in his letters for believers to be imitators of his example. And in the same way, he is living his life to imitate Christ. And in these few verses, I think there's a lot for us to glean just by observing his comments and trying to maybe put his template that he gives us there onto our life. It's something that I think is quite easy to see, but much harder to apply and, and live like it. So Paul reminds the elders in verse 18 about his example when he was with them from the first day, he says. He served the Lord with great humility and with tears in the midst of severe testing by the plots of his Jewish opponents. He did public ministry, but we also know that he went house to house to meet with believers as well. He talked to anyone who would listen, Jews and Greeks, about the gospel. And he clearly was determined that everyone would have the opportunity to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus for their salvation. Now, we've been witness to all these things in Acts already, in Acts 19 in particular. He's seen all sorts of things happen in Ephesus. It's been a bit of a roller coaster two years, you might say. We've, and I know we've covered and recapped and recapped, but from those baptisms of those believers in Ephesus in Acts 19 to uh, the miracles and the dramatic conversion of the magicians to uh, the burning of all those dark occultic books, all the way up to the riot of the silversmiths and the cra craftsmen stirring up those uh, crowds. Paul has seen so much happen in this one city. 
But what's his heart for the elders who are taking on the baton now? Follow my example, he says. And if I was going to put a word on his example this morning, I might use the word steadfast to describe the way that he's behaved. What I find really stunning in all of Paul's ministry is that he maintains such composure in Ephesus despite everything that's going on around him. <clears throat> it sometimes seems that there'd be unbearable pressure on Paul's shoulders trying to do the work there. It looks like everyone wants a piece of him where he's traveling around. Everybody wants him to steer a little bit longer. Everyone's begging him to, to steer with them, to give them more ministry, to give them more spiritual food. And when he's not there, and we see this in his letters, it looks like many of the churches that he cares so much about fall into division and even heresy. And so God is thinking, how does he keep it together and not buckle under that kind of pressure? Well, firstly, notice Paul doesn't boast in any of his work. Rather, he knows that his work is set on imitating Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, he says, Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. In 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 11, he says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. It's quite a list. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. So Paul leaves us this steadfast, godly example. He trusts that God will make good of his work, and he pleads for the truth with tears and humility with the Ephesians. But it isn't a buckling or a losing control when he weeps with them. I think what we see is that he has both the heart for ministry, but he also has the steadfastness to keep going and know that the Lord knows what he's doing. So the question that kind of leapt out quite obviously for me and hopefully for yourself is, are you a steadfast believer? If you look at Paul's example, can you be relied upon in your race? We know the basics of what Christian service requires, of course, following Jesus' example and preaching the gospel as Paul says, but how do we organize our spiritual lives to do that well? How do we become steadfast in our work like Paul? And so I would suggest maybe we, we might struggle on one of two fronts, two things that I think we see Paul uh, shows us that we might struggle with. Firstly, perhaps you're the kind of Christian who can sympathize with Paul's emotional sides. You weep with those who weep, you feel the pain of people who are suffering, and maybe you're really gifted at coming alongside other people. Think of how many churches and individuals Paul must have felt responsible for in care and devotion. It must have been agonizing to try and hold them all in prayer and minister to so many different needs all at once wherever he went. I know I would certainly feel overwhelmed with trying to do that kind of pastoral service. And you might see that side of Paul and wonder how was he able to be so steadfast. And I think what we see is Paul was a humble servant but he knew where to give it to God as well and trust him in all of these things. And so those of us this morning who maybe feel burdened or feel terribly anxious about trying to care for others and do the things God calls, need to learn to trust that God is working all things out for the good of those who love him. By all means, keep serving God with that wonderful humility if you've been given that and the heart he's given you for others. But also remember to give the burdens back to him. And I know my go-to verse for those anxious moments is Philippians 4, 6-7, which says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. I have to do that sort of on a semi-regular basis. Give it all to God by prayer and petition and trust that he will give that kind of peace. I'm sure Paul must have needed, and in the midst of all his responsibilities, that enormous weight that he was carrying, the peace of God which transcends all understanding. And his example is there for us to see as well what it means to be steadfast. So that's maybe the first possible issue we might have and something we can see from his example. But for others, then the other potential issue is maybe you're really good at keeping on top of stuff, which Paul also seemed to be quite good at. You shoulder lots of responsibility and you get things done because that's just who you are. God has gifted you with the ability to crack on with things. And, and Paul sometimes looks like that on the surface. He just seems to get on with it all the time. He never seems to falter on the surface. I was reminded a little bit of Mary and Martha, who Jesus spent time with. Remember, Mary spends her time at the Lord's feet. She's listening intently to him and she shows great devotion. Martha, on the other hand, she thinks it's better to work hard. And so she serves and serves and serves. But in the process, she misses the Lord's voice. And you might associate with Martha too. She's the one Jesus rebukes and tells her that Mary's choice was better. So notice that Paul was much more than just a worker who was a busybody. He was wiser than Martha in his service. He so deliberate. He doesn't try to do everything. And I think that's a good reason why he doesn't actually detour in Ephesus itself here. I'm sure they were desperate for him to come and spend time with them. But Paul knows that he needs to discern the Lord's will first rather than try to do everything. And we need to be both the heartfelt servants and the steadfast workers where we can to be imitators of Paul. See the way that he preaches with tears, the way that he loves, and also the way that he stays strong somehow in the Lord and he keeps running. Whether he's preaching and ministering with tears to the believers or whether he's boldly out in public preaching to the, the Greeks, he's following the Lord Jesus and he trusts, doesn't he, that God is going to take care of the rest. You want to have both those things in your life if you can. With all the emotion that the love and devotion brings and the steadfast ability to trust God in all things. I think it's the fact that Paul's both he's such a special example to us. I'm going to get the name right this week because I've been reading a lot of John Wesley lately. But he says, and I'll paraphrase slightly, it's an in-joke if you were here last week. <clears throat> he says, holy tears from those who rarely weep in ordinary life and no small example of the efficacy and the proof of the truth of Christianity. Yet joy is well consistent therewith. The same person may be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I thought that was so true. Isn't that true of Paul and his example? And isn't it true of the spiritual examples that you've looked up to in your Christian walk? The people I look up to in the faith, that's what they're like. They have that steadfastness, but when they consider the Lord Jesus, their eyes fill with tears as well. And it's not an easy challenge, and, and maybe we're all on a bit of a sliding scale to some extent, where the extremes might be an emotional wreck at one end and, and somebody who's just uh, maybe that uptight British crack-on-with-it kind of person on the other. But I hope it's an exercise that's useful just to see Paul's example in both of those things and his heart as a model for us to imitate now, Paul summarizes this chunk with what he expects will happen next. Verse 22, he says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. 
the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, even though those words are really powerful, I find it hard to do any more than just emphasize them. Paul's had to flee a number of cities in the past to flee persecution and serve elsewhere. Remember, he left Damascus in a basket lowered out of the city walls. But now he knows that God is actually sending him into suffering. And that, uh, I think, talk about steadfastness is a good example. So it's one thing to persevere when, when persecution happens, but it's another thing to step willingly into the arena. And Paul wasn't the only one who willingly endured it at the end for the sake of gain in the Lord Jesus. In fact, if we just dipped back into Act 7, you'll remember it was a young Saul of Tarsus to become Paul, watching over the death of the young Stephen as stones rained down on him. And back then it was Stephen who could say those words, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying of the good news of God's grace. And now it's Paul's transformation that's complete, isn't it? He's imitating Stephen, who in turn imitated Jesus. That was the cry of so many in the early church who followed in his example, run the race until such a time as the Lord Jesus brings you safely to where he is. He's gone ahead of you and the circumstances of your delivery might not feel very safe, but he will safely bring you into his arms when you finish the race. A couple of examples, the early father, uh, church father Ignatius was martyred to the lions just a generation after Paul. And the reports say that he said, let what will come, come upon me only so that I may obtain Jesus Christ. How many since then have finished the race similarly to testify to the good news of God's grace? I shared a few weeks back at the prayer meeting, a translator recently in Cameroon, William Gamu, who was kidnapped and murdered, murdered just last month, leaving a wife and six children. I have no idea what that's like to go through or how God works these things for good, but I know that William finished the race and in his death, he still testified to the good news of God's grace, as Paul said. And so I think the exhortation from Paul's words is really clear. It's very easy to understand what he's saying, but very, very hard to live it out. It summarizes this chunk of the text up to verse 24 for us. So look at Paul's heart and example and maybe pray that God would give you that heart that you might imitate him and in turn imitate Jesus. Pray that God would enact his promise of Ezekiel 36 by taking away your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh. And that takes place when we believe, but how much do I still need God's work in my life to break those selfish tendencies and bring about a greater love for Jesus? So at this point, Paul now gives his message to the elders, knowing that this, this is part in words to them in person. This is his passionate plea we're turning to, to those who were shepherding the church in Ephesus. Now, these words are recorded for us all, even though the priority really was for those who have got spiritual oversight to hear them. He knows his time is short. He's not going to see them again. And he knows that the church is very vulnerable to false teaching. So this is verses 25 to 35. We'll read now. It says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw weird disciples after them. So be on your guard 
Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you, dear, sorry, night and day, with tears. Now I commit to you under the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I'll stop there and we'll conclude with the last three verses shortly. But here we come to a section of scripture which could branch into many different directions um, to study. I'm reliably informed that some pastors have managed multiple, even 10 sermons out of these words. And so I, I can't cover it all. But I hope to bring out some points that have spoken to me and, um, and challenge us where we are. If it speaks to you in additional ways, simply through its own authority and power, then brilliant, that would be great. But um, putting two words on this chunk scarcely covers it, I think. But I feel the urgency of verse 28, as Paul calls the elders to keep watch, is a good place to start. It feels that this is the thrust of his call to them. Watch yourselves, watch one another, and watch over the church. So let's work through it. Verses 26 and 27. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So Paul starts with this, with this with a plea, with a declaration that he's innocent of the blood of any of them. And it seems a strange thing to say to, a, to the group. How is this the case and why does he even say it to them? Seems quite dramatic, doesn't it? Well, Paul says, for or because I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God or the whole counsel of God in sometimes other translations. There's a couple of things we need to see in this. Our role in the lives of believers, first of all, is of others and believers, so is to tell them, everyone really, the whole will of God, isn't it? Paul can set an example. He can give the message, the full message of God, but he says he can't be held accountable for what these men do with him. His role is to be truthful and urgent in getting that message across. And for us too, I think we should take that on board. How often we might be discouraged in the faith when we bring encouragement to someone, but maybe don't see any fruit from the back of it. Paul says, I've given you everything you need the whole will of God, and now I'm leaving the torch in your hands to do the same. These elders would be tasked with doing just that. And the challenge for the church is to consider really if there's anything in the will of God that we fail to pass on. Do we diligently look to share all of it, or do we worry about some bits and fear and hold them back? Paul doesn't shirk, does he, from the consequences of deliberately misrepresenting the gospel message and preaching a diluted or a watered-down version of Jesus. Paul knows that he's done the work, but if there's any wolves among them, they will be held accountable for poor teaching and poor leadership. And if you see any glaring shortcomings in the message, or worse still, a failure to be truthful with the scriptures, I hope that the congregation here will feel at liberty to speak to the preacher after and seek the whole will of God be proclaimed. And it's not just for the congregation that you would do that, but for the person bringing the word as well. Paul's words remind us of the weighty responsibility that it is to proclaim the word of God. However, with that heavy responsibility, I think does come some reassurance to them. Paul makes it clear that in his teaching, which we still have here, in not just these words, but in the letters as well, the whole will of God has been communicated. In the gospel message and in his words to them, which we have right in front of us this morning, all they needed to do was be faithful in sharing these things. It's not so complex that the preacher needs a, 
a PhD scholarship or something to get to the truth. We should expect everything that we need to do to be found in the scripture. What a relief to know that with that heavy responsibility comes the joy of knowing that God speaks through his word and our job is to be faithful to it. So let it all speak, read all of it, test all of the things by it. We're about to hear about sheep in a moment and Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And so I believe Jesus has gone ahead of us. He's given us the law, he's given us the prophets, he's given us his own words and he's given us the commentary of the rest of the New Testament to listen to his voice and to follow. Isn't this what Martin Luther discovered once with joy? in his studies. If Paul has preached the whole will of God, as he says there, we should expect to find everything we need in here. This is what Luther said as he discovered that. All the world has desired, searched and sought to know this, but no one ever attained such a knowledge till it was revealed from heaven through Christ. It is embodied in this message. We should no longer seek or expect any other revelation. Here it may be clearly perceived that the gospel itself is witness that the word of preaching and the sacraments are the means by which you may know God's decree concerning yourself. If you believe the message, you shall be saved. It must have been an amazing discovery and hopefully one that still makes us rejoice today. If we as a church, if we as individuals are willing to be honest in sharing that message with others, then we can stand with Paul and say, I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. But still be challenged to think about those words around you and I. For those who don't know the truth, <clears throat> that truth yet. And moving forward into verse 28, it says this. <clears throat> Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought with his own blood. Shepherd the church of God there, the church which God purchased with his own blood. I think of the richness of these words. There's definitely a sermon in them. First, let it never be said that Jesus was not God himself incarnate, come in the flesh. He bought with his own blood, we were told there, the church. We could dwell on the mystery of the gospel message for eons of time there, but in this context, Paul, I think, makes that point for a purpose. He's not saying it to preach the gospel to them. He's stating it to the elders to remind them of who's in their care. The Holy Spirit, he says, has anointed you to this purpose of looking out for the spiritual well-being of others. And if you need a reminder of the preciousness of the church in your care. Remember that Jesus Christ, even the very Lord himself, the creator of all things, bought the flock with his own blood. So if he, who was the perfect lamb of God, was willing to pay such a price to redeem the church, just how much should these elders be willing to give to keep them from falling? And so the encouragement of the church, look at the, word, look at the words that are spoken of us. How precious you are to God who bought you with his own blood at Calvary. All these urgent instructions that these elders are getting flow out of his love for you. They flow out of his desire to see you, the church, thrive. But Paul continues, why is he tearfully making this desperate plea in verses 29 to 31? I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guards. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Watch out for savage wolves. We'll get used to this picture, I'm sure, in Scripture, and it was useful for me just to, like a child, maybe picture it again for a second. Remember the shepherd's livelihoods and the well-being of his family, really, was in looking after these sheep. 
It's his life's work and his greatest commitment is to keep them safe, not just for the sheep's sake, but for his own family as well. Can you imagine how devastating it would be if a shepherd looked up and realized he'd allowed a wolf into the folds? It's no good blaming the sheep then, is it, for what happens next? It's too late. If the shepherd tolerates a wolf and his flock are scattered and destroyed, then the blood of them sheep is on his hands. And the picture of wolves is used by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7. And if we see Matthew 7, verse 15 to 20, you'll see his very similar call to keep watch when he says this. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you'll recognize them. And I think this bit's relevant as well. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Savage wolves, Paul said, ferocious wolves, the words of the Lord Jesus. What do they have in common? They spring up among the sheep. They come from within the group. They look like Christians. They give the impression of being faithful. Jesus talks in Matthew 13 about a man who sowed good seed in his fields, but while he slept, his enemy sowed bad seeds in amongst the wheat. And the man tells his servants, don't pull the weeds up until it's time to harvest. At harvest time, they'll separate them and then they'll burn up the weeds then. These are all pictures that are connected to wolves among the church. They distort the truth to draw away disciples after them. They teach lies. And to spot them, Jesus says, look for their fruit. If their message doesn't align with what Paul's just said there, the whole will of God that he's just referenced, then the fruit is bad. And fundamentally, if any teaching doesn't start with the message he's just preached to them, that Jesus, God himself, bought his church with his own precious blood, then it's bad fruit. There are no compromise areas. They're the areas we need to keep watch in. And sometimes I think in the modern day, I'm tempted as I look around at the overwhelming plethora, really, of unbiblical teaching, especially when it's coming from churches that were built on solid ground in the past, to just despair when you think about how far many churches have strayed. If God is really faithful to his church, the church that he's bought and redeemed at such a cost, how could these things happen? Well, actually, I think it's right here, isn't it? It happened around Paul, and so we should expect to happen in a major way around us as well. And I think, sadly, the church in the UK, many churches are ravaged by wolves. I think the UK church at large has lost sight of sin, lost sight of what we've been redeemed from, lost sight of the building of the church on his words, as Paul commanded here. And once you've thrown away some of the whole will of God, you might as well renounce the whole thing. The leaders have got the blood of the hands, blood on their hands, sorry, if they've picked and chosen. Because you won't be able to pick grapes out of the thorn bushes, as Jesus said. There won't be any figs on the thistles when he returns in his glory. So keep watch. Keep watch with urgency, knowing full well how serious the task in hand is. The shepherds can't drop their guard. Now, something that I found in studies, Revelation includes a letter to the Ephesian church, and there's a warning to them to return to their first love and repent of their sin. It's not all good news, but there is something in their favor, they're told, in Revelation 2, verse 2. Jesus says these words to them. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and found them false. I thought, I was such an encouragement. Isn't that great to hear that? Years after Paul's visit here, a generation along, Jesus absolutely rebukes the Ephesian church and he calls them back to a closer relationship with them. 
But what, we all need that shake-up at times. But he does commend them that they hold on to something. And it's exactly what Paul has just urged them to do in the passage, at least for a generation. And we need to do the same. Don't assume that we'll be spared from false teaching springing up here. Be watchful. The Puritan Richard Baxter said, Remember when you look them in the faces, when you behold the assemblies, that they must be converted or condemned, sanctified on earth or tormented in hell. And that this is the day. It must be now or never. Which is a hard-hitting challenge. As we draw near the conclusion... Paul urges the believers there to follow his lived example again in verses 32 to 35. And I've said quite a bit about over the last couple of weeks about this. So I won't cover it verse by verse here. But I think verse 32 is the key to it. It says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now in some ways, Paul uses his own lived example to reiterate what we've just seen there. He's saying, I've showed you the fruit that you now need to look for in one another. If you submit to God's word, he'll build you up. He'll change your life to prepare you for this wonderful inheritance. All those who are truly saved, who know the good shepherd and follow his voice, they will have eternal life. And his example becomes practical advice, really, to finish his play. It's good living. It's being content with what God has placed you. It's being prepared to work hard and use your time well to serve others, meeting the needs of those who are weak as the Lord Jesus did. And those words of verse 35 add to it, where he says, Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And it's funny because a lot of us know those words, um, but those words of Jesus are not found anywhere in the Gospels. No doubt the disciples shared a lot of what Jesus said that we'll never know in this life. John finished his Gospel, didn't he, by saying as much that all the books in the world couldn't contain uh, everything that Jesus said and did. But in this one saying, Jesus called us to be imitators of him again, to be prepared to give freely without expectation. Remember again, as Paul said, that he was willing to give his own blood, to precious, uh, precious blood to rescue you. Imitate him and consider it more blessed in your life than to give in service of others than to receive. As we conclude, I'm just going to read the final verses of our passage. It says, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Now what I notice is that even with all the powerful words that he's just given to the elders, Paul knows that his words are not enough. And so they finish by getting on their knees and praying. I think prayer is still our lifeline, isn't it, for uh, living out faith. How much do the elders still need prayer? Um, to keep watch and imitate Paul. And I know I'm certainly very thankful for prayer and encouragement and, and challenge as well. Um, it's all needed. And I love when we're at the prayer meeting, spending time just lifting the, the whole church of God before God in prayer as well. I would say it's essential from Paul's words and his example here that we do that regularly, to pray fervently for the protection of the flock. Pray that we'd have this kind of love for one another, that our hearts would break to be apart from fellowship like we see this group at the end. And return to a point I made earlier, most importantly, really, pray that our love of Jesus would remain great. That our effectiveness in all of these things, really, is only going to be as, uh, as, as great as our love of him. If we really love him, why would we not pursue and live to imitate him and all those great examples in Scripture? If we really love him, how could we not keep watch? And uh, if we really love him, how could we stand by idly and let false teaching destroy the church? 
And as Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Of course we will. The more we love him, the easier it will be. So pray for that love to be stirred up in the church. And finally, their time of prayer concluded with weeping as they said goodbye to Paul for the last time, or at least uh, for the last time in this life. Maybe worth clarifying. And this is the words of an old commentary. It says, they all wept. Of old men, yes, the best and bravest of men were easily melted into tears. And this is about 200 years ago this was written, but how true. It says, but now we leave all the tears to women and children. That's, that's uh, interesting. <clears throat> but remember that for all of us who weep together, who go through life together, exhort one another and pray for one another, we'll all go through this kind of pain. We experience separation and sorrow, don't we? But we will meet before the throne of God so where we won't be parted again. And what a comfort to these Ephesians and a comfort to us as we finish to know that Jesus goes with us and uh, we remain united in him. Let's pray as we close. Lord God, I just pray and um, thank you for just Paul's example as we've seen there. I pray that the urgency of his words to the Ephesian elders, these were men who were so closely connected to the time of Jesus. They had the teaching of the apostles. They had um, Paul's own words and his own ministry among them. And yet Paul's prayer and his urgency for them is just staggering in terms of his concern and his weeping and tears that he pours out. And I just pray that um, here in this church, Lord, that we might not lose sight of that kind of urgency among us, that your word would be our authority, that we would keep watch, that we'd never assume falsely that uh, this church is immune from uh, false teaching, from savage wolves. Please, Lord, uh, just ingrain in our hearts a great humility, a great desire and a great love for you, that we'd always, always be on watch and that we'd be willing to preach the whole counsel of God to one another and to our village. Pray that you'd stir our hearts up in love, Lord, for those outside this church, that we would never be able to say that there's blood on anyone's hands here, Lord, but that we'd be eager and urgent and desperate to see the love of God and the light of the gospel break into the lives of, uh, of our community. Thank you, Lord, that in this dark world you have given us a light, you have given us a hope, and that one day we'll safely be delivered to your kingdom. And praise, Lord, praise you and give all the glory to you in him, Lord, for everything that we say in your word, those great truths. Amen.